If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get those out <clears throat> and open with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in the second chapter and the first part of uh, chapter three today. Uh, and while you're doing that, you can uh, get your core guide out. Probably got one of these. A little place on the front that you can take notes. We're a little over halfway through uh, our winter quarter of core groups. I hope those are going well for you and you're finding a, an opportunity to dig deeper into the scriptures that we talk about on Sunday mornings. We've started, a, or we're in the middle, I should say, of a series called Urgent Messages. The Gospel of Mark is very abrupt. It's fast-paced, and <clears throat> but yet we want to slow down uh, and take a, 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 a very intentional journey through a fast-paced gospel. And so we've been in it several weeks, and we are, we're going to crack into chapter 3 today. So um, fasten your seatbelts. Now, we have reached a section... We started it last week uh, of a series of controversies. The, the opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark uh, introduces us to Jesus. He's baptized. He calls some disciples. He launches out into a ministry of, of teaching and preaching and healing. And people love it. Uh, and they flock to Jesus because he speaks with one who has authority that they have not heard before. Uh, and he's healing people and he's casting out demons. So he naturally draws a crowd. <clears throat> so the, there's this build of, uh, a build up in this first chapter where Mark shows us the crowds forming around Jesus. And then, and then we get into chapter two and we get five controversy stories right in a row. Mark wants to make sure that we know that everybody wasn't happy with what Jesus was doing. So last week we talked uh, about the story where the four friends uh, dug through the roof and lowered, lowered their paralyzed friend down in front of Jesus. So this is um, happening kind of in the context of of church and, and Jesus proclaims forgiveness and the religious professionals just go nuts because who can do that besides God alone? Well, that was the point, but it started a controversy. Uh, then after that, uh, we read the few verses of a few weeks back when Jesus was calling disciples and the second controversy uh, in chapter two is that Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector as one of his disciples. Now, Jesus, you can't do that. You're consorting with the wrong people. Controversy number two. Controversy number three, they get upset because of Jesus' fasting practices, that he's not doing it correctly. And we get to the fourth and the fifth controversies today. There are two Sabbath stories that I want to read to you. Now, all throughout Mark, and in the other Gospels, Jesus oftentimes walks right into the middle of church, and he, he just looks around. What's going on in my father's house? Hmm, what's going on? And he's, you know, uh, he's, <laughs> he's Jesus, God in the flesh, and we learn more often than not that He's a little displeased with some of the things that go on. And so, if you would stand with me, I want to read through these two uh, Sabbath stories. <clears throat> one happens uh, outside the church, one happens inside the church. So, Matthew 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, 
Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he, is, he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians on how they might kill Jesus. So we're the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, while, while you have your Bibles uh, open, flip with me to um, an Old Testament book called Deuteronomy. Uh, in, in chapter 5 there, also in Exodus 20, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5, there's, there's a section, uh, it's almost typed word for word. <clears throat> you might have heard of these, they're called the Ten Commandments. Anybody heard of ten, ten, anyone? Anyone? Okay. A couple of you. Uh, look to your left as you leave the front door and you might see a little statue out there. Um, if you look closely at the Ten Commandments, the law of God given to Moses, uh, a lot of them, they make a, lot, a whole lot of sense when you think about it. God says things like, uh, don't, make things that, don't make things into gods that aren't God. Um, because if you do that thing, whatever it is, it's not going to be able to uh, bear the weight, and it's, it's going to collapse around you, and it ultimately will destroy you. So uh, if you make your spouse your God, you know, it's going to go bad at some point. If you make money your God, it's going to let you down and collapse. Um, if you, whatever you set up in the place of God in your life that's not God, you're in for a rude awakening at some point. It's not going to be able to bear the weight of your expectations, and it's going to come tumbling down around you. If you make something that's not God, something a God that's not God, uh, it's not going to end well. That's what God is saying here. Now, that's sort of a paraphrase. He actually says, you shall have no other God before me. And that, that makes sense, right? Does that sound like it makes sense? This would be yes. This would be no. <clears throat> this would be the right answer. <laughs> makes sense. Uh, don't be a liar. Makes sense. Uh, don't, um, <clears throat> don't covet your neighbor's wife. Leave your neighbor's spouses alone. That, I get it. That makes sense. Don't steal. Of course. I get it. If you, if you read through these, you're kind of you're gonna go, th go through them and you're like, yeah, I, that makes sense. I understand why he would give it. Yeah, yeah, I see why God would be concerned about that in, in our life. <clears throat> That's what I think about when, when I read them. And I'm, I'm so glad that, that God... You know, wrote those on stone and gave them to Charlton Heston so that, that we could have them. And uh, <clears throat> I can see why God is concerned with these things. But you get partway through the list. In fact, I think it's number four on the list. 
And there's one there that kind of stands out as a little bit different than the others. A bunch of them have to do with, um, you know, ethical dilemmas that we, you know, moral choices that we have to make. Um, but he has one right here. So if you're in Deuteronomy in, in chapter 5, uh, in verse 12, he says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither, new, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day." So the Sabbath, we're talking, we're talking about two Sabbath stories in Mark today. It was, a, it was a commandment, one of God's top ten, if you will. And it was a special day that was uh, designed by God. It was a sign between God and his people um, to mark them as his own. And if you notice that, <clears throat> there's not a whole lot of there's not a lot of detail that, that they give us. God just says, don't work. And he lists off, you know, like, to make sure, you know, you and your animals and anybody who works in your household, you know, everybody is off. No work. But outside of that, there's not really any precise detail. Like, well, what does it mean to work? So now, the <clears throat> religious professionals who are trying to with good intent, honor the commandments of God to help the people be uh, holy. Well, they started to make rules so they wouldn't break other rules. Rules upon rules upon rules. And so it just, it, it, um, it became this very strict and rigid and heavy. I mean, this was an oppressive system to make sure that people followed the rules that were in place. And of course, when you, when you have rules upon rules upon rules, something called legalism starts to set in. And whenever legalism sets in, it sucks the life out of everything around it. And Jesus is coming to confront a legalistic attitude in the Pharisees and the, the other religious professionals. Now, uh, <clears throat> for a long time, uh, Sundays in our culture seemed to revert back to the old law that we just read. You know, no work, nobody. And so it, you weren't allowed to do much on Sundays, some of you in the past. And, you know, I think it was, well, you're just supposed to sit around and think holy thoughts for the day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, other than that, that's about all you were allowed to do. That's what it seemed like for some of you growing up. Um, even in our country, there were, uh, anybody know what a blue law is? You know, blue laws were designed to restrict what you uh, can or can't do on a Sunday. And so some Stores would be closed. You couldn't sell this or that uh, or do certain types of activities. I, I put a little thing out on my Facebook page yesterday just asking you, what was it like when you were younger growing up? What, what were you not allowed to do or what were you allowed to do? And, um, you know, I think the, the balance, the tenor of what everybody was saying was that when Sundays came around, the pace of life was different. However many years, decades ago, the pace of life on Holy Day was different than the pace of life on other days. I think in years gone by, we were probably a people who had our lives centered around our faith a little bit more than, than we do now. 
You know, some of you talked about not being able to go to movies or roller skating or shopping or things like that. My friend, my friend Mike, who was a, he was a, uh, the youth pastor on staff over in Spokane, he, he grew up in Canada, and so he and I shared the love of hockey together, and, and he, I don't think he grew up in a Christian household. He said, I was pretty much allowed to do anything, but the goalie on my hockey team was not allowed to play on Sundays, and our backup goalie was not any good. So, <laughs> sorry, Mike. I'm here for you, buddy. It just was different. You know, there's things that you couldn't, couldn't do. Uh, and I think it stemmed from a, a, a very strict reading of the passage that we just don't work. We're trying to figure out what does that mean, what for us. So we get to this story in, in Mark, um, in chapter 2 that we just read, and the, the, the first little episode, and Jesus and his disciples, were, well, they're, they're out meandering through a grain field. Why they're not on the road, I don't know. They're, they're in the middle of a field, and it's a Sabbath day is what Mark says, and uh, maybe they're just going for a walk, but the disciples, they start, you know, picking some of the heads off the grain stalks. And it doesn't say why, they were doing that. You know, when you walk through, and you're walking on a path, and there's the tall grass that comes up and has the, the little seed head on the top. I mean, you ever just grab those and pluck them off as you walk? Maybe they might have been doing something like that. They might have been picking it to eat. It doesn't say that. Uh, they might have been just picking them up and chucking them at each other to have some form of entertainment. We don't know. But they're walking through a grain field. It's the Sabbath day. They're picking something off of the grain, and the Pharisees are out there. Now, I don't understand why Jesus and the disciples are in the field. I really don't understand why the Pharisees are in the field. Why, why are they out there? I mean, this is Galilee, and at that time, there weren't that many Pharisees that far north in the country. But the notoriety and the fame of Jesus had spread and the controversies had started to bubble up, I think they were like the paparazzi, these nosy journalists who, you know, they want to follow this guy around and try and catch him at any little thing that he does. I mean, how many of you have ever had, you know, uh, been accused of being, or you have accused somebody of being a tattletale? You know tattletales. They follow you around, and they're just looking for you to mess up, and as soon as you mess up... They run it off and they tell mom or dad or teacher or whoever. You have people in your life right now that you just feel like they're just looking over your shoulder, you know, wanting to make sure you're doing everything right. Yeah? Yeah, me too. Um, I, I understand. Um, the Pharisees accuse the disciples of doing something that was not lawful on the Sabbath. They were picking the grain. And technically, by the letter of the law that they had made up, that was work. They were harvesting. And you're not allowed to harvest. You're not allowed to do that form of work on a Sabbath. If you're going to eat on the Sabbath, you prepare the food the day before so you can get through the Sabbath without you know, having to prepare anything, and let alone have to go out and pick something. So, the Pharisees see the disciples do this, and they go right to Jesus. <laughs> we got the disciples on the hook. We caught them red-handed. Jesus, what are you going to do about it? Jesus doesn't deny what they did. He doesn't even make a, a statement about what they did. He immediately quotes Scripture. <laughs> I love it when Jesus quotes Scripture. Uh, I love it, when, especially when he quotes scriptures to, to men who are experts in the scriptures to show them that they are wrong. I love it when Jesus does that. I mean, he does it all the time. Jesus' favorite book in the Old Testament is, is Deuteronomy, and he's constantly quoting Deuteronomy to guys who had memorized the whole book of Deuteronomy, and, and Jesus does it to prove that what they were teaching out of the book of Deuteronomy was just flat out wrong. Like, you've totally missed the point. 
of why it's there. So in this case, Jesus quotes something out of 1 Samuel, and he compares himself to King David. Now, that was a bold move. And for astute observers, they would have understood, they would have picked up on exactly what he said. But it's, it's a really subtle claim to being God's Messiah. I am God's king. Come, coming, you know, I'm in the line of, of David, and, and I am God's true king. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on in verse 27, 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So he's redirecting him there. You're, you're, you're getting it a little... You're getting a little backwards there. The, the cart is before the horse. So the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, this is the second time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. And astute observers of Scripture would immediately be drawn back to Daniel chapter 7, where it talks about the Son of Man being God's Messiah, the, the Holy One of God. And so what Jesus is saying is, um, hey folks, I created the Sabbath. <laughs> I was there at the beginning. I was the one who spoke the world into existence. I made I made the Sabbath. And so therefore, I'm going to go ahead and take authority on um, being the one to interpret how one observes the Sabbath. And I'm telling you right now, you're putting the rules ahead of, of everything else. You're, you're, you're focused so in, you know, on the minutia of the detail that you're missing the larger point of why I put the Sabbath in place and to begin with. And that's the whole point of this first little pericope here is that caring for human need is way more important than strict observance of religious ritual. Uh, Jesus told the Pharisees that, that they were focused on the wrong things. They had the law, but they failed to see or embrace the intent of it. And a lot of times people will say, well, Jesus is abolishing the Sabbath here. He's saying that, you know, humans rule the Sabbath, and that's not... It's not what he's saying. He still, he still upholds the Sabbath as God's commandment, but what he's reminding them is, is that there's a reason why it's there. He's pointing out that the Pharisees had created so many rules on how to observe it that it totally distracted them from the life-giving intent of this particular law. So anytime that... When I'm thinking about law... Anytime we talk about the laws of God, we, we run the risk of sounding legalistic. And we run the risk of being viewed as being motivated uh, by fear um, if we don't follow the law. So if you, spend, if you spend a lot of time with people who aren't believers in Christ or you know, don't have a lot of experience in that area, there's this conflict that comes up between what Christians believe, what we would say we believe, and what the world thinks that we believe. So there's this tension, and a lot of it comes down to an understanding of the law of God, how we see it. Uh, the world thinks that we obey God's moral law because we believe that if we do not, that God's going to zap us. I mean, that's the picture that you see in movies and cartoons and literature and things like that. Uh, the world believes that, that we think that if we don't obey God's law, that he's just going to, boom, get us, smack us down. It's, it's all that we are motivated totally by Fear. They think that our devotion to scriptures and to our God is totally fear-based. Like we fear the consequences of, of not obeying God's law. And the reason they believe this is, well, because for some people, for some Christians, that's true. That's what they grew up understanding. It's what we were taught. Um, there are uh, evangelists, religious 
professionals, pastors who have used fear as a motivator, which is flat out wrong. To try and drive results at the altar by um, basing that totally on scaring people. That's not a really good tactic to use, but the world has seen that happen, and so a lot of times the, they come by it honestly to think that, well, we follow God's law because we're just afraid of the consequences. But I'll say this to you. Heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of hell. It's a place for those who love God. And that's a big difference between how we view God's law and how it shapes our life and our behavior and how the world sees our motivations. We're motivated by love. We love God, and so therefore, we proclaim him as king, and so therefore, yes, I am acknowledging that God may know something about my life that, uh, that I do not. He knows better than I do what I need. And so, out of love and respect that he is my king, I will bow down before him, and I will honor his word, and I will do my best to do what he says. That's motivation by love. It's not motivation by fear that, well, if I, if I, if I don't, you know, he's going to get me. And the truth is, in the, when you read through the Old Testament, especially in some of the Psalms, um, when anybody speaks about the laws of God, they don't speak about it as being weighty and oppressive or bad or being driven by fear at all. Uh, I mean, think about King David. He talks about the law as it's, it's like honey on his lips. This is a guy who lays around at night and he dreams, he thinks about the law. That's an odd duck right there. <clears throat> but it gets at the heart of the issue is that it was motivated by love and, and not by fear. So law in the Old Testament isn't viewed as a negative thing. We don't obey the, the law because if we do not, God's going to destroy us. We obey the law because it's God's way of leading us into life and meaning and promise and purpose and hope. That's why we follow the law of God. And God created us. And he created the law because he knows something about us. He knows exactly what we need. God's law wasn't made to suck the life out of us and take away all our fun. God gave us the law to lead us into life, to lead us into healthy relationship with both him and with each other. That's why he gave us the law. It's about life. It's not, it's not about death. Now, when you take the law and you make the law the point rather than the path to all of those things, then you're getting a little bit sideways. And that's what Jesus is confronting in our passage. He's dealing with a whole group of religious people who, who they made the, the rules and the law the point. And they forgot that, that the rules were there, the laws were there to lead them into life and promise and future and, and all of God's grace and mercy. And we see this happening um, in, in the next section. We, what we see is that a group of people, uh, men and women who are abusing the law and, and in ways that, that cause them to just trample over people. It's more important to follow the law than it is to save somebody's soul. And, and we see this come up in, in verse, uh, starting in chapter 3. Now, we have numbers and chapters, and that wasn't part of the original text. And so, chapter 2, how it ends, it just kind of runs right into this story. But as you're looking at your Bible, it begins in, in chapter 3 there in, in verse 1. Mark tells us that Jesus went into the church. He went into the synagogue. And there was a man in there who had a, a shriveled hand. And... If you had a withered hand, I mean, this was uh, a problem, kind of like the paralyzed guy. But he's there in the synagogue, and he would have been, he would have been viewed as, in his culture as, as having sinned in some way, or his parents having had sinned in some way to land him in that condition. He would have been viewed as a social outcast. And, and there were some in the crowd who were looking 
for a reason to accuse Jesus, and they were just watching to see if Jesus would heal this guy. Now, I'd have to do a little bit more research, but it occurred to me this week when I was reading through it, I wonder if the guy with the withered hand was planted in church. Because a lot of times people who were paralyzed and had disformities like this weren't allowed into the regular practice of the synagogue. But here this guy was in the middle of church. And there were a group of people that Mark identifies that were there that were waiting. They were just lying in wait. Jesus is going to be here today. This guy's here, and he's been going all around the countryside healing people, but it's the Sabbath. Now, it was lawful to save life on the Sabbath, but it was not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And so they would have looked at this guy, okay, well, he does have a condition, and it would be, you know, yeah, it would be good for that guy if it was healed, but they don't care about that at all. Uh, You can wait how six, five or six hours to, to get past the Sabbath. That, that would have been fine, but we're in church on the Sabbath day. Here's the guy with the withered hand, and here comes Jesus. I wonder what's going to happen. We're gonna, maybe, maybe today's the day that we, that we get him. They have no compassion for the, for the man who's suffering. There's no grace for this guy there's not even a hope or the, for this man, and there's, there's no mercy for this guy. He's just there, and the only thing that they're worried about is entrapping Jesus. And Jesus sees the man and asks him to stand up, Call, calls attention to him. Hey, stand up. Doesn't say anything else to the guy yet. There's no evidence of... Um, faith, no words that Jesus speaks in the healing process, but the question that he asks is, he looks, he has the guy stand up, and then he looks around at everybody else, and he says, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? That's a deliberately provocative question, and the place was silent. No answer at all. And Jesus knows, he knows in his heart that they would agree with him that doing good and saving life are permissible on the Sabbath, but they won't say it because that's not why they're there. They don't really care about that right now. So Jesus looks around at him and he gets angry, righteously angry. And it grieved his heart that their hearts were hardened. Takes us back to the language of Exodus when the people were enslaved there in Egypt and Moses went and approached Pharaoh and over uh, a a repeated number of visits between Moses and Pharaoh, hey, let my people go, we just read read that Pharaoh's heart hardened inside him prevented him from acting in compassion and mercy and grace. And Jesus looks around at these people in church who are waiting to accuse him of something, and he sees that stubbornness and that hardness in their hearts that's preventing them from seeing people in their midst who have needs. Jesus grieved. So he tells the guy, hey, stretch out your hand. And he does, and it's totally, completely restored. This man has been made whole in the presence of, of everybody else. And it's a beautiful story that this happens in the context of, of this worship environment, but it's totally lost on everybody else because immediately after this man was restored and made whole in their very presence, it's a miracle. A member has been added back into their community In verse 6, Mark says, immediately they go out and they begin to plot with the Herodians on how they can kill Jesus. Now, the way this story ends is just dripping with irony. Because, well, first, Jesus has called them out. Is it it lawful to do 
good to save life or to do harm or to kill? And the right answer, according to their law, is it's, it is permissible to do good. It is permissible to save a life on the Sabbath day. And yet, here's the Pharisees who are, they're violating their own Sabbath. Because they're plotting in their hearts to do evil, to do harm, to kill on the Sabbath day. And, and then the second part that's just dripping with, with irony is that the Pharisees, who, they're kind of a, a political activist group. Um, kind of a, a, you know, they were religious professionals. They had in their minds to help the people uh, maintained holiness. By this time, this group of uh, people, the Pharisees, had probably been around for about 200 years, and that's a long time as a, a group of people to be uh, together like that. And they were highly respected because they knew the law. They, they knew their Bibles cover to cover, every word memorized, and, and so people would go to them for, for counsel. <clears throat> but they had no power to prosecute that they were just an activist group, a group of people trying to help the people maintain their holiness. So to get any action, to bring any, to press any charges against Jesus, they have to go out and now and collaborate with a group of people that they're totally against. Now, the Herodians were those who were in the country who were placed there by Rome, and they had legal... Um, capabilities. And so we, we see the, the Pharisees now getting together with people that they just, they don't like. Because without the Herodians, they can't do anything. They can just accuse Jesus of all these things. They can't actually make any of it stick. And so they bring their charges to the Herodians. Hey, what are we going to, this guy's breaking the Sabbath. It's punishable by death. Let's go. I mean, what are we going to do? And that's the picture that we get at the end of all this. Well, over and over, we see Jesus tangling with the Pharisees and with these religious experts on um, matters of interpreting God's law. The law is good and given for the benefit of, of humans, but Jesus constantly points out how they've perverted that law and are using it in the totally wrong way. They're making the law the point and not the path to freedom and grace and mercy. For whatever reason, Jesus isn't holy enough for them. That's an indictment on somebody. If you think that you're holier than, than Jesus. And Jesus goes in and he sees this system of their laws that's just oppressing and crushing people under its weight. And it breaks his heart that they've missed the point. And for a moment, let's just consider why we're here. What's, what is God's purpose for us as his followers? We believe that we are created in God's image and that when uh, sin entered into the world, that it tarnished that image in humans. And we believe that Jesus came into the world um, as a perfect human who lived a sinless life and we know that he was crucified and we declare and we believe that, he, that, that God raised him to new life from the dead and that through him our sins can be forgiven, that the image that was tarnished, we can now be restored and that God's promise and, and God's gift to us is the constant presence of his Holy Spirit to guide and direct and to encourage and comfort us. We, we believe all of those things. And, and God, God's purpose for us, what he wants out of each and every person, is that we would go out into the world and be his image bearer. That, that we would go out as those who have been cleaned and redeemed and brought to new life in Christ, those who have experienced the forgiveness that Jesus offers us, God asks us, he commands us to, to go out and share that love and grace and mercy with other people, bearing his image wherever we go. 
And he knows. He knows that's hard. He knows what we're up against. He knows that if we go out and we do that, that we're going to get tired. It's going to wear us down because it's heavy work. It's heavy lifting. It's difficult to do. And he knows that the turbulence of life that we experience, he knows that the pace of our lives that that we tend to keep are going to wear us out too. He knows that we're going to get caught up chasing our tails and trying to make a way and a living in this world, and it's just going to wear us out. He knows that we need the Sabbath. So he commanded it. Commandment number four. Sabbath encourages us to give up control and to declare trust in God. Not working is giving up control and declaring our trust that ultimately God provides for all our needs. Just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us, our, um, give us this day our daily bread. It may seem really difficult and hard to imagine that we would be able to keep up with everything that's going on in life if we set aside a whole day to really to do no work, to, to do nothing. It's hard to imagine that we could keep our pace. It's a weekly choice to trust God, to lay down our pursuit of success and achievement and wealth, and instead remember that that all of our success and our achievement is a gift from God in the first place. It takes a lot to be able to set that pursuit aside and say, okay, God, I'm going to take and enjoy the Sabbath rest that you have commanded. As we live in the society that um, is just so fast-paced, Uh, It's constantly going. We go from one obligation to the next, one place to the next, one thing. There's a thing to do, and then there's another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and it never seems to end. And our technology is beginning to consume us. We have this incessant need to be constantly connected with, with everything. It's rare that we are fully wherever we are. Because if, if, you have, if you are digitally connected to the outside world, wherever you are, you're always looking through a window into somewhere else. And so when, when we do that, we, we are splitting ourselves between who we're with and who's out here between what's going on in the present right here and what else is going on out there. One of the 11 essentials of Christian discipleship is practicing Sabbath rest. I, oh, a couple months back, I printed off these cards. It's just 11 essentials that I think are necessary for Christian discipleship. And if you didn't pick up one of these, they're on the counter in the back. Um, but one of them on here is, is Sabbath rest, and I, it's critically important for us. But it's so difficult for us to do in a 24-7, 365-day-a-year post-Sabbath culture that we live in. It's go, go, go. And if see, the world teaches us that if we stop or if we slow down, that we're going to somehow, in some way, we're convinced that we're going to fall behind. And when we be, think that we're going to fall behind, we, we attach that to losing and when we think we're gonna, we don't want to lose, and so, so therefore we just keep pressing on and, and we keep going, and so we, we just don't ever slow down and disconnect. Sabbath rest clashes with our cultural expectation. But God modeled the Sabbath for us. Think about that. An all-powerful God who never needs rest. God doesn't need the rest. But after six days, he said, wow, this is awesome. I'm going, to take, I'm going to take day seven off. I'm going to kick my feet up, and I'm going to look around at all of the beautiful things that I just created. And so God models it for us, even in himself, even 
And somebody who doesn't actually need the rest, God pauses. And he says, this is a healthy thing to do. Jesus models it for us in his mystery. Already in Mark, we've, we've seen Jesus model taking time out to recharge. Back in uh, Mark chapter 1, uh, Jesus had, he had uh, cast out a demon, and then he went and he, he healed Peter's mother-in-law and, and then healed a whole bunch of people who had, had gathered at the, the doorway at the end of the day. And, and then, and then it, Mark says that early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went out to pray. To, to pause, to retreat for a little bit, to recharge, to be in the presence of his Father. And then Mark shows that the disciples come and they say, hey, there's more work to be done, Jesus. He says, you're right. There is more work to be done. And so he goes back to work. So Jesus has modeled work, rest, back to work. So what does Sabbath look like? I think, you know, when many of us think about Sabbath, we tend to think about solitude and, and silence, and that's certainly part of it, but it's not, it's not a whole picture. Real quick, I want to give you, I want to give you three words, and write them down, if you will, um, categories to think about practicing Sabbath. The words are worship, rest, and celebrate. Worship, rest, celebrate. Three verbs, Okay. Uh, to worship, really what that means is to enjoy God. When you disconnect and when you get away and when you take that day or, or maybe it's a, uh, a half a day or whatever, whatever you define as your Sabbath, this is my Sabbath rest, it includes these three things, worship and rest and celebrate. Uh, to worship is to enjoy God. To, if, it's, if Sabbath is Sunday for you to, to go to church, to pray, to read your Bible, to listen to worship music. Um, the second word, to rest, to retreat, to get away, to, to pause, to disconnect from technology, the electronic leashes that, that have us do our bidding, to take a nap. The point is to recharge your batteries. And you've got to remember this, to recharge your batteries looks different for different personality styles. So, you know, introverts and extroverts recharge in, way, you know, in different ways. For an introvert, after a busy week, you know what? You just want to get away and be by yourself. And that silence and solitude sounds pretty good. But when an extrovert has spent a whole lot of time, you know, working in the office stuff and, and just, you know, getting right down into details... To recharge looks like going out and connecting with friends as a way to recharge. So worship and rest. And then celebrate. Play. Have fun. Uh, connect with your friends. Create something. Art, a hobby, whatever it is. Immerse yourself in nature. Go for a walk. Worship, rest, celebrate. I hope those three things might help you um, Think about your time, your Sabbath time, and they're all three critical parts to it. Do things that will help you joyfully affirm the goodness and the trustworthiness of God in your life. And learn to stop worrying about what you're not accomplishing. That might be the biggest challenge for many people in, in our fast-paced society. So I just want to close and ask you, do you, have, do you have a day when you're disconnected? Do you have a day that you define, that you set aside as your Sabbath? It doesn't necessarily have to be a Sunday. There's lots of people who work on Sundays. I'm really thankful for the doctors and the nurses and the firefighters and the police officers who, who work this shift work, and, and they are on duty right now while we are in here worshiping God. There's just some occupations that you have to work on Sundays, and so your Sabbath is a different day, and that's totally... 100% okay. My Sabbath is on Monday. I try and have Monday off on a, a weekly basis to enjoy time with, with Lisa and, and just worship and, and rest and celebrate. And then I want to ask, is it a priority for you? Or is it something that you just say, yeah, you know, that would be good, but you never get around to it. 
You need a day where you don't do, but you just are. Jesus, he says, I am Lord over the Sabbath. And he wants you, he wants to bring you, he wants to lead you into life. And, and on the Sabbath, it's a really good reminder for us that there's nothing that we do. There's no work that we can do to earn the grace that he freely gives to all of us. I wonder if you would stand with me. I'd, I think the way that I want to close this morning is to read my Sabbath psalm. I, my, my very favorite psalm is 103. And just listen to the words of, of King David as he praises God. You can hear notes of worship. You can hear notes of rest. And you can hear in this words of celebration. And so even if it's for, you know, two or three minutes while I, I read this, may this model or give you a few moments of true Sabbath rest. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. The people of God said, amen, amen.